The moon was in the window. The bedroom swam silver in its light. Half past eight o'clock on October 3rd, 1868, and Hannah Russell lay awake, her husband Perry beside her. He slept deeply and didn't stir, though wind shook the roof slates and rattled the shutters and somebody rapped at the side door. Hannah and Perry were in their seventies, the children long since grown. The hired man helped Perry about the farm but lived elsewhere, while the maid was off that night, visiting family. The Russells were alone in the house. Hannah woke her husband. There's someone at the door, she said. Perry threw back the blankets, said he'd better go and see. Be careful, Hannah urged him. Find out who's there before you let them in. This wasn't the first time such a thing had happened. Eighteen months previously, in March of 1867, the Russells were roused by a knocking at the door. Perry had grabbed his gun and raised the door latch, but no one was there. This time he didn't take his gun, but crossed the dining room in his night clothes and spoke through the closed door. What do you want? A man's voice answered, Want to come in. Who are you? Perry asked. Joe Bushy, the voice replied. Bushy was 16 and had worked for the Russells the previous summer. What do you want? Perry asked again. Want to come in. Welcome to these dark mountains. This is the murder of Perry Russell. lifted the latch, opened the door. The first blow struck him across the face and broke his nose. Oh Lord, he cried, and staggered back bleeding as the man pushed into the house. Perry grappled with his attacker, or tried to, but the man was younger, stronger. He threw Perry to the ground and beat him unconscious. Hannah crawled from the bed. A stroke three years before had left her partially paralyzed, but she managed to limp into the dining room. In the moonlight, she saw her husband sprawled on the floor groaning, with his attacker standing over him, swinging what appeared to be a metal rod. He loomed in the doorway, black night behind him so she couldn't make him out. The same dark saved her, or so it seemed. For the man took no notice of her and made no attempt to pursue her as she staggered out through the front door and through the farm fields in her night dress with the moon lighting her path and a sky of stars above her head. The Russell farm was among the largest in Hinesburg, and it was a distance of around one-third mile to the home of their nearest neighbor, Jerome Coleman. Hannah woke the Colemans, who accompanied her farther south to the Walston farm where the general alarm was raised. The doctor was sent for, 
as was the town constable, and Coleman gathered together a group of armed men before returning to the Russell farm. They reached the house at around nine o'clock and found Perry lying in the doorway. Beside him was an old barn door hinge, 16 inches in length and matted with blood and hair. The men tried to wake Perry, but he proved unresponsive, so they dragged a straw bed into the dining room and lifted him onto it, making him comfortable till the doctor could arrive. Dr. John F. Miles reached the house around an hour later and performed his examination. Perry's nose was broken, Miles observed, and the old man had suffered eight blows to the head with a heavy object, presumably the door hinge. The injuries were almost certainly fatal. An inquest would follow. Like other towns of its era, Heinsberg had a constable in justice, but no real capacity to conduct a criminal investigation. For this reason, authorities resolved to send for Noble Flanagan. In those days, the telegraph lines tended to follow the railroads, so it's likely a rider was dispatched to Shelburne, and news of the attack wired from there to Burlington. Flanagan, 56, was Burlington's chief of police, as well as a deputy U.S. marshal and the former sheriff of Chittenden County. In 1868, he was perhaps the preeminent investigator in the Champlain Valley, having come to prominence three years earlier following the Griswold murder in Williston. Of equal importance, perhaps, he was also a Heinsberg native, having grown up in the village and married Amanda Love, also of Heinsberg. In 1842, his daughter Martha Salome died, tragically, at the age of two, but the Flanagans remained in Heinsberg until 1857, or thereabouts, when Noble was elected Chittenden County Sheriff. At around three in the morning, on October 4th, 1868, a messenger came to Flanagan's Burlington residence. There had been an attack, he was told, probably a murder. He was wanted in Heinsberg. Flanagan left directly and arrived at the Russell farmhouse in the hours before dawn. Perry Russell lay on the straw bed in the first room of the house. He was alive but fatally injured, and his family had washed and cleaned the wounds so there was almost no blood to be seen. Flanagan spoke with Hannah Russell, who told him of the man at the door, the conversation she'd overheard. But was it actually Joe Bushy she had seen? Hannah couldn't be sure. Flanagan examined the crime scene. The door hinge was obviously the murder weapon, and he took it into his possession as evidence. From the Russells, he learned the hinge had been stolen from a barn on the property, along with a broken pitchfork that was found by the door, as though discarded. The attacker was disorganized, unprepared. He hadn't brought a weapon, but settled instead for what he could find, a broken pitchfork an old door hinge. In the Russell's barn, he had snapped the horsewhip and slashed through the harnesses, indicating to Flanagan the man had feared pursuit and probably came and went on foot. He watched the house and waited for the Russells to retire. The last lamp was extinguished at around eight, and the man approached the house some minutes later and knocked at the side door. Perry let him in and was immediately attacked. The man battered Perry with the hinge, but let Hannah go. It was of no account. He knew what he was after. Didn't need much time. 
From the doorway, the attacker went to the Russell's bedroom and took down a leather-bound trunk from inside the clothes press. Until recently, the trunk had contained around $5,000 in U.S. bonds, though Perry had deposited the money at a bank in just the last year. Plainly, the attacker was unaware of this fact, however, for he had taken the trunk and nothing else. This provided a motive, as well as a murder weapon. Flanagan even had a suspect. The man at the door had identified himself as Joe Bushy, a local boy who lived with his father on Buck Hill, around four miles south of the Russell farm. Flanagan drove down there in the dark. Joe wasn't home, but he spoke with his father. From him, he learned that Joe had accompanied his mother on a visit to Burlington and would have been in town at the time of the attack. The boy had stayed with his mother in Burlington overnight, but was expected back soon. Bushy was in the clear then, but Flanagan didn't return to the Russell farm, not yet. Instead, he left Joe Bushy's place and drove a little farther uphill to the Welcome farm. Henry Welcome was only 17, but already had a reputation as a drinker, a liar, and a petty criminal. The previous year, age 16, he was implicated in a break-in at a Heinsberg store and fled to Massachusetts. In Boston, he had stolen a watch and received a six-month sentence for theft. In August or September 1868, he was released from the House of Correction and returned to Vermont. In Waterbury, he hired a horse and cart to take him to Milton, where he attempted to sell the carriage as his own. The scheme didn't come off. Welcome was arrested by Washington County Deputy Sheriff Milo Stewart and committed to trial in Montpelier, where he was acquitted ultimately on account of his youth, though his lawyer's fees left him deeply in debt. Flanagan knew Henry as a small child and was familiar with his recent history. The boy was unstable, spiraling, and what's more, he was seen in Heinsberg as recently as October 1st. Flanagan spoke with Henry's father, Levi, who confirmed Henry had stopped by on the 1st, but only briefly. The boy needed money to settle his debts, and Levi gave him $5. Afterward, Henry walked across town to Lyman Parch's farm, where his sister lived, presumably to ask her for money. From there, it was his stated intention to take the train to New Haven to visit with another sister, but Levi hadn't heard from him since. Flanagan bid him good morning. He returned to the Russell farm and found a house in mourning. Perry had died at around nine o'clock, and his family had laid his body out in the parlor, as was the custom. They bandaged his head to hide the worst of his injuries, but the wounds to his face were clearly visible to the townsfolk passing through, nearly two hundred in all. Some, surely, were motivated merely by curiosity, but many came to pay their respects or to offer assistance. Flanagan put them to work. A search of the property that morning found boot prints leading away from the house in a northeasterly direction. The prints were widely spaced as of a man in flight, and Flanagan dispatched a group of townsfolk to follow. These men crossed the town line into Shelburne, where they found the trunk discarded in a farm field, upside down with its bottom smashed in and its contents strewn about. October 4th was Sunday, a day without work, 
and excitement in the village was general. Flanagan listened to the gossips and asked after Henry Welcome. A witness placed Henry in Shelburne Village on Saturday morning, while others indicated they had seen him, or someone much like him, near the Russell Farm in the hours before and after the attack. Joe Bushy came back from Burlington and talked to Flanagan. Yes, he had seen Henry. This was at the Welcome Farm on Thursday afternoon. The boys were neighbors, if not exactly friends, and they had spoken briefly. Henry was hard up. He asked Joe where he'd worked the previous summer, and Joe told him he'd worked for Perry Russell. Henry mentioned the debts he'd accrued, and showed Bushy six dollars, including the five dollars he'd received from his father. This was all he had in his possession, Henry said, but he'd get the money. He knew a way. It also emerged that Henry had visited the Russell farm on at least one occasion previously. In March of 1867, Levi Welcome sold Perry Russell a colt for $55. Russell had only $50 in his possession at the time of transaction, but agreed to pay the remaining $5 upon receipt of the colt. Levi sent Henry over with the colt. Perry invited the boy inside, then took down the trunk from the clothes press to pay what was owed. Not long afterward, a man came to the Russell house in the night and pounded on the door. Perry grabbed his gun. He opened the door, but all was quiet. No one there. Snow on the ground, like faint stars glittering. News of the murder appeared in the papers the next morning. The October 5th edition of the Burlington Free Press reported on the circumstances of the murder, as well as Flanagan's suspicions of young Henry Welcome. Copies of the Free Press were delivered to the post office in Essex Junction early on Monday morning. William White, a shoemaker, read the paper at the P.O. and soon afterward chanced to encounter a man there named Noble Irish, who was Hannah Russell's nephew. White was an acquaintance of the Welcome family, and mentioned to Irish that he had put up Henry's brother Philip the night before. That evening, Sunday, the Whites came home from church and found Philip outside their door. He was taking the 6.55 a.m. train, he explained, and asked if he might spend the night with them. White agreed, and thought nothing of it, not then, nor of the bloodstains on Welcome's clothing. Irish heard this story and was confident that Philip Welcome must in fact have been Henry. He wired ahead to Waterbury with his suspicions and asked authorities to detain Henry Welcome aboard the 655 to Montpelier. Deputy Sheriff Milo Stewart received the telegram and met the train in Waterbury. He went aboard and recognized Henry at once. The boy slouched in his seat as though to escape notice but Stuart himself had arrested Henry for theft only a few weeks earlier. I want you, Stuart said, and Henry nodded. He didn't speak or struggle, though Stuart fastened the manacles about his wrists and escorted him off the train. Afterward, the deputy took the boy to his own house in Waterbury, 
where he provided Henry with a change of clothes, the blood-stained garments he took as evidence. Stuart asked Henry if he was responsible for the killing, but Henry denied it and blamed a nosebleed for the stains on his clothing. There would have to be a hearing. Stuart enlisted the help of two men, including George Arms, and the four of them set out by carriage, arriving in a Heinsberg village around noon. Legal proceedings began immediately. A preliminary examination, similar to an inquest, was held at the town hall with Justice Elmer Beecher presiding. Proceedings began with Heinsberg's grand juror charging Henry Welcome with the murder of Perry Russell. Henry listened, stone-faced and with utmost indifference, as the newspapers reported. He pled not guilty. When asked if he would like his father to be there, Henry replied that he should like well enough to have him present, but at this point several citizens said the father had requested not to be sent for. Various witnesses were called and questioned, including Joe Bushy, who repeated much of what he had told to Flanagan previously. The examination lasted two days. George Arms later recounted a conversation with Welcome that took place on the evening of the first day. From the Burlington Free Press. After the first day's examination at Heinsberg, I had a conversation with Welcome and said if he could show where he was that night, he was all right. He then said he wished to God Daddy was there and he could make it all right. He saw his brother and requested me to go and call him. I went to do so, but could not find him. He said he must see his father and importuned me to go and see him and request him, his father, to come and see him. I returned and told him his father was not coming. Henry wanted his daddy, needed him to make it all right. Probably he hoped his father would provide him an alibi, but Levi didn't come and the hearing concluded the next day. Henry was to stand trial for murder at the county courthouse. Until then, he was remanded in Stuart's custody to be transported to the jail in Burlington. Again, the men set out in two carriages. Henry, manacled, rode up front with Stuart in the second carriage following. The party took the Shelburne Road northbound and were two miles northwest of the village when they met the hearse with Perry Russell's body. The funeral had been held that morning at the Russell house. Now the mourners traveled in procession to the village cemetery for burial, a line of nearly 100 carriages following behind the hearse. Stuart ordered his men to pull off that the procession might pass. Henry remained in the open carriage, sitting quite upright. The mourners drove past, meeting his eye. They knew who he was, of what he was accused, but Henry said nothing. He showed no shame or guilt, no feeling whatsoever, and didn't look away until after the procession had passed. Noble Flanagan was in Rutland during the hearing, but resumed his investigation upon his return to Chittenden County. He had previously found witnesses who placed Welcome near the Russell farm on October 3rd and went on to gather new evidence providing a fuller picture of Henry's movements at the time of the murder. On October 1st, a Thursday, Henry had left his father's house on Buck Hill and walked to the Parch farm in Heinsberg, 
where he spent the night. The next day, he traveled to New Haven by train to see another of his sisters, before returning to Shelburne on Saturday, October 3rd. He disembarked from the train at Shelburne Village and walked back toward the Russell Farm. The attack occurred at half past eight in the evening. Welcome fled the house with the trunk and afterwards smashed it open, only to find there was no money inside. He must have been in a panic. He wandered in the moonlight, slept in a hay barn. The next morning, Sunday, he attempted to wash his clothes. The blood was dry and wouldn't come out. At around 2 p.m., he was spotted in an orchard in Shelburne, and later that afternoon, he was seen on the bridge to Winooski. From there, he followed along the railroad tracks until he reached Essex Junction, where he passed himself off as his brother Philip and stayed with William White. Flanagan interviewed Henry in jail. Another prisoner had warned the boy to be on guard against old Flanagan, but it seems Henry admitted to the murder under questioning, though he later recanted. As a consequence, his statements to Flanagan were deemed inadmissible at trial. He was tried over three days in April of 1869. Flanagan and Stewart gave evidence in the case, and Hannah Russell testified to the circumstances of the attack, the brutality of it, and of the man she'd glimpsed in the doorway, his shadow looming. Henry, was that you? she asked. Oh, Henry, was that you? The boy didn't reply. Indeed, he remained quiet throughout the three days of his trial, as numerous witnesses were called to testify against him. Among these was a former cellmate named Jerome Dumas, who testified that Henry had admitted to the crime. Guilty, Henry had told him. Guilty as hell. Closing arguments were presented on Thursday, April 22nd, with the jury taking only 20 minutes to return a guilty verdict. Henry was impassive, unemotional. He was returned to jail and was later reported as playing cards with his fellow inmates. Henry's legal counsel appealed to the state Supreme Court, which delayed his sentencing until the court's next sitting. During this time, Henry was confined at the state prison in Windsor until January of 1870, when he was transported to Montpelier for sentencing. Again, the papers described him as detached, indifferent. The clerk ordered him to stand and asked if he had anything he wished to say before sentence was passed. I have not, he replied. Judge Barrett addressed Henry directly. He urged the boy to examine himself and reflect upon the state of his soul, and the court was hushed as at a deathbed when Barrett read the sentence aloud. It is ordered by the court that on Friday the 21st of January, A.D. 1871, between the hours of 11 o'clock in the forenoon and 2 o'clock in the afternoon, respondent be hanged by the neck till dead at the state prison in Windsor. Henry, it is reported, listened closely. He watched the judge, his expression unchanging. The correspondent for the Burlington Free Press remarked, that Henry must possess either the utmost hardihood or an unusual amount of brutish indifference. But either way, he wrote, the prisoner's detachment was terribly painful to witness. 
But if Henry's silence was dreadful to behold, it would be as nothing to what came afterward, when all petitions for clemency failed, and Henry was led in irons into the courtyard of Windsor State Prison. It was 12.30 in the afternoon on January 21st, 1871. Prior to his execution date, he had made a full confession to a reporter. Along with his confession, the papers carried his final declaration in which Henry expressed remorse for his crimes and warned other young men against drink. But tears will avail nothing for me now, he wrote. May the blood of Christ wash away my sins. This is my last and only hope. Executions in Vermont were not at that time public events. A permit was required to attend, but even so a crowd of around 50 was present in the courtyard, including numerous state and county officials. Welcome wore mulberry pantaloons with a black shirt and no tie or collar. His open coffin was on display. The sheriff led him past it and then onto the platform where a selection from scripture was read. Afterward, Henry was permitted to address the crowd. It is hard for me to speak, he began, but I want to say a few words. He warned other young men against drink and low associates before concluding, I have confessed my crime to the world and I believe God has forgiven me. I can say no more. He trembled on the platform. He looked up then as if toward heaven or perhaps only at the gibbet overhead. I'm ready, he said. The hood was secured, the noose fastened. The trapdoor opened and Henry fell through. He didn't struggle. A doctor was in place beneath the scaffold to monitor the prisoner's heartbeat. The pulse grew faint, fading, and six minutes later, it was over. Noble Flanagan was there. He watched Henry die. Perhaps he remembered Henry as he once was, a small child, innocent as the daughter he'd lost. He might have wondered at the years that had passed, that made Henry into a murderer and turned Flanagan into the instrument of justice his executioner. He may not have tied the rope or pulled the lever, but could have had no doubt he was responsible for the boy's death. And Henry was in truth little more than a boy, nineteen when he was hanged and barely seventeen when he killed Perry Russell. At the hearing he wanted his daddy and begged George Arms to fetch him, but Levi wouldn't come, not then. Not now. Henry was dead and his father didn't want the body. The boy was to be buried in the prison yard. The men untied the noose and Flanagan looked on as Henry was carried to his coffin. The next year, Flanagan stepped down from his position as Burlington's chief of police. By that time, he was perhaps the most prominent detective in Vermont and continued for some years to work as a private investigator before entering the livery business in the final years of his life. He died in 1882, age 70. He's buried with his wife and daughter in the Hinesburg Village Cemetery. Hannah and Perry Russell are buried together in the next plot. 
151 years later and the murder of Perry Russell has largely passed from memory. The old Russell house floats on a sea of flowers, ringed with gardens where once there was wheat or corn, the fields through which Hannah Russell fled by moonlight, ghost-like in her nightgown, and through which Henry Welcome, age 15, led his father's colt. Thank you for listening to These Dark Mountains. Today's episode was sourced from newspapers of the period and from public records. Our music and theme are by John Mills. Episode transcripts are available at our website, thesedarkmountains.com. Thank you.